Now let's uh, step into Mark's gospel, where we've been, we've returned in this season. Mark getting his his gospel probably from the Apostle Peter, uh, writing to Christians in Rome. And now we get to read these pages today. Um, we're entering actually a section in Mark's gospel that's pretty significant. Uh, it's, it's when Jesus is walking this path, a path that is between two mountains. Uh, he left the mountain of transfiguration. It's there where we see Jesus uh, for who he is and all of his glory, radiant. His face is shining like the sun. Uh, the disciples are on their faces in horror. And, and as we read the Jesus of the Gospels, we cannot forget that Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the Psalm 2, Son of God, who God places on his holy hill, to whom the nations, all the nations of the earth will bow. Uh, he is the Daniel 7, Son of Man, uh, who is the one who will come in the glory of, of, of Messiah and slay evil and all its perpetrators once and for all. Then he'll be ushered back into the clouds. He will stand before the Ancient of Days, and he will be given authority over heaven and earth forever. That is Christ. And that's what the disciples, that's who they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Jesus also said that Daniel 7, son of man, came to suffer. And he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus leaves the mountain of glory, that place of glory, where he lays aside his glory. And now he makes his way to another mountain, a mountain that we know as Calvary. And it's the path between these two mountains where we are in Mark right now. This is the path to the cross. And this is not just a path Jesus walks, but this is the path Jesus calls his disciples to walk. It's the path he calls us to walk. And what this path is and what it involves for a disciple is what is laid out in these chapters. Now, what we're going to look at today, I want you to hear me on this. <laughs> my heart, my heart so needed this text this week. And so if I don't care... If it's not for anyone, but if it was just for me and what God wanted to do in my heart, um, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. If I get a little too passionate today, it's because it is first and foremost for my heart. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 38. Rabbi, said John, this is John the disciple, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Interesting. These disciples were just trying to drive out a demon, and they couldn't do it. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can do in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose the reward. Now Jesus goes back to that idea of the little child that we looked at last week, when he placed a little child among them. 
And he said, unless you welcome this child and become like this little child, you'll never enter my kingdom. And now Jesus goes back to that. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and if they were thrown then into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. You can be seated. So I think as, if you've been coming in the last several weeks, um, we're starting to see that these disciples are not showing too well. They're arguing, they're, they're bickering, uh, at times they lack faith, and we haven't talked about this that much, but these guys, with the exception of Peter, are all under 20 years. So only, only Peter is older than 20 years, and I, I, I can't... I don't have time right now to, to show you how, how I know that. But John is probably the youngest disciple, and he's probably also the most passionate uh, because Jesus gives him a nickname with his other brother, James. Uh, he calls them the Thunder Brothers. And so you don't get a nickname like that if, if, if you're not pretty uh, thunderous or, or, or passionate with, with, with chutzpah. And I think it's all part of the reason why Jesus chose people like this. But John at this point, I think, is getting too big for his britches. He complains to Jesus. He says, someone outside of our posse is actually using your name, Jesus, to cast out demons. So I went to him and I shut him down because he's not one of us. Now, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, I like to think that we can all look at this and see how John is exposing himself, not even realizing that he is exposing himself. I mean, first of all, his ignorance. John is, is pretty ignorant of the kingdom of heaven here. I mean, his version of the kingdom of heaven almost sounds like some clicky junior hire. Way too exclusive. Very tribal. And how often do we think, though, that we have a corner on the market of the kingdom of God? How often do we find ourselves thinking, if it's not our thing, if they don't do it our way, if they don't say it the way that we would say it, if they don't think it just the way that we would think it, or sing it the way that we would sing it, or preach it the way that we would preach it, or do it the way that we would do it, how quickly we either diss it or dismiss it as inferior to how we do it. Or sometimes I see this uh, generationally. Um, I mean, my, my generation coming up was a part of this, and then you turn uh, 50, and all of a sudden it's like, and I'm well into my 50s now. Um, you know, you're now, you're, you're, 
the, the, the parents, you know, and there's a whole other generation under you. And how often, though, a generation will have this smug attitude towards their parents or towards their grandparents' generation with just such, th- such thoughts of thank goodness for our generation that we would never do it the way our parents or our grandparents did it. And we're here to save the day. I mean, thank goodness that we're not fundamentalists or evangelicals or like that, but we're this. And we are now on the scene to make this all work. That's ignorance. We have to know that the kingdom of heaven is so much greater than our own tribe. It's bigger than our own tradition. It's bigger than our own denomination. It's bigger than our generation. It's it's bigger than our personal experience of the kingdom of heaven. And see, like most ignorance, John's ignorance is also really rooted in arrogance. He's proud. And I want us to see that, that the, the people who are sometimes the most susceptible to pride are disciples, like John. And not even just disciple, but John is part of the inner circle. I mean, Jesus, right at the beginning of chapter 9, took up with, to that mountain of glory, James, Peter, and John. And I want us to see the effect that the Mount of Transfiguration has had on young John. I mean, first, it, 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 it produces this self-importance in him where he can actually say to Jesus, Jesus, how about me and my brother sit at your right and left hand? And now they, they shut down this, this fellow teammate. Why? Well, he's not one of us. And see, that mountaintop experience that John had with Jesus led to spiritual pride. It filled him with all this self-importance. And John now has become the complete antithesis of the one that he's actually following. And I have to say, in, in my years of being a Christian, I am growing weary of Christians who think too much of themselves because of their spiritual experiences, who are constantly seeking them because their faith is defined by them, and then they have the audacity to project those experiences onto other people. Listen, people who follow Jesus, people who walk with Jesus will have profound experiences with the Savior. They will have mountaintop experiences. But when we have these things, we need to just be grateful. We need to let them humble us, not fill us with pride, where we keep this between God and myself. And we certainly can't make those mountaintop experiences a a, a mark of discipleship. The crucible of discipleship is not on the Mount of Transfiguration. The crucible for discipleship is walking with Jesus to Calvary. It's that long path That long obedience in the same direction. It's that mundane faithfulness where we're learning how to deny ourselves and take up our cross through all the heart, all the pain, all the hurt. 
And knowing, yeah, there is probably a death that we're walking towards, but that death actually leads to our life. If you think I'm making way too much of this, I don't think I am because I also have someone like the Apostle Paul who speaks the same things. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talks about these mountaintop experiences he had with the Lord where he was literally ushered into the heavenlies and given visions of things that just absolutely blew him away. But you know what he says after that? He says, to to keep me from being conceited, to keep me from pride, spiritual pride, God gave me a thorn. And that is oftentimes God's solution to spiritual pride. It will come in the form of a thorn, a God-sent thorn, a pain, a suffering, something that is going to pop the bubble of our puffiness and expose our weakness. I love what Paul says. Paul says, I needed that thorn. I needed that thorn to keep me from spiritual pride. In fact, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'll boast about that thorn that God brought into my life. And so some of us this morning, we need to thank God for those thorns. And some of us this morning may need to pray for those thorns. And here's why, because too much is at stake. Our unity with our brothers and sisters uh, is rooted always in humility. God help us. God help us be humble. Now, the next section. Let me just push into this. Jesus speaking here. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, to sin, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. And he keeps going. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands than to go to hell. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. What's the theme of this section? Sin. Hell. I think it's fair to say that sin is not a popular word today. Our culture has completely dismissed sin as some outdated, oppressive, maybe even abusive thing to believe. The church, in my opinion, has become very silent on the word. We, we rarely acknowledge it and deal with it. In fact, now we've replaced the word sin with words like brokenness or being broken instead of being sinful. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus is very comfortable talking about sin. He's talking about sin actually all the time. And, and when he talks about it, like he is here, there's, there's no sugarcoating this word. There's, there's no watering um, the notion of sin down. In fact, the picture's 
that he uses here to speak about sin are quite graphic. They're, they're almost gruesome. Guys, you see, you see that two-ton millstone there? <laughs> and you, did you see the lake over there? Can you hear it? Can you hear the waves? Well, anyone who stands in the way of, of, of a little one following me or caused a little one to stumble, it, it, it would be better for that to be wrapped around his neck and for him to be thrown into that. I can see those disciples, their eyes are this big. <laughs> They're probably swallowing hard. And then he's, he, he's not done. I mean... The second picture he gives, he says, okay, now let's talk about this further. If, if, if your hand causes you to sin, amputate it. If your foot causes you to sin, amputate it. Now this honestly is where I have to ask the question, is, is Jesus joking? Is, is he just speaking metaphorically? And all I can say to that is, do you think I want to speak for Jesus today on that? <laughs> but I don't know if you ever saw the movie of, of, of that mountain climber. It was actually uh, pretty gruesome, um, but this is a true story about a guy when he was mountain climbing, uh, this gentleman right here. Uh, his arm got pinched between two rocks where it was stuck. And the only option he was left with was being stuck and dying a slow death on that mountain, or he broke his arm instead and then took out his knife and slowly cut his arm off. And why did he amputate his arm? He amputated his arm because if he didn't, he, he would have died. Now this, I can, I, I can confidently say, what Jesus is doing here is, is he's, he's giving us this picture to, to shake us up, to, to wake us up, to see two important realities. The first is the serious threat that sin poses for us. Sin can destroy a person. Sin can damn a person. But the other thing that Jesus, I think, wants us to see is the infinite value of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, think about this phrase that we even use sometimes. I'd give my right arm for that. And think about the different things that we say that about. I'd give my right arm for this. I'd give my right arm for this. And, and, and you, you see what we're saying, like, like that thing is so important that we would literally give that much to get it. And I could we say that about the kingdom of heaven? That we give our right arm for it. And see here, Jesus is, is, is talking about sin. So, hey guys, while we're at it, let's just talk about hell too. Three times uh, he, he uses the word hell. And when you read the Bible from cover to cover, you will quickly realize that no one talks about hell more than Jesus. In fact, it's not even close. And again, even when talking about hell, Jesus doesn't give us a definition. Instead, he gives us a picture. Uh, and, and the picture that he gives us, the word for hell uh, is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna is simply the Greek name for the valley of Hinnom, which is just outside Jerusalem. 
Uh, and, and in this valley, there's a lot of biblical story that took place in the Old Testament. This is the site where God's people, yes, God's people, sacrificed their own children, where they were burned alive on the altars of Baal and Molech. Even in our text, kings like Ahaz and Manasseh sacrificed their own sons in this valley to those gods. So later in the biblical story, when the Jews returned from from exile, this valley was held in such disgust that it was made the city's garbage dump. So this is the place where where they would throw all the dead carcasses, all the filth from the city. It was also the place where they'd have public executions. And so the valley became extremely offensive. The sight of it was horrific. The air was polluted with the stench of decaying. Uh, animal flesh and human waste. So in an attempt to make that whole valley sanitary, it was constantly fires were being burned. And so Jesus uses this picture of the Hinnom Valley, something that they could see. It's, It's something that they could touch. It's something that they could smell. In fact, they couldn't think of anything that was more disgusting, putrid, repulsive, horrific than Gehenna. And with this picture, Jesus is letting us know that hell is not just a place outside this world, but it is a place in the here and now. Choosing to sin now. We are choosing to get a taste of Gehenna in the here and now. And I don't know if you and I think about sin and its effects in this sort of way. I'm surprised no one's gotten up and left yet. I know some of us in this room find this teaching, by the way, this is not my teaching. I'm just trying to do credit. This is Jesus. Some people today find this very harsh. Some even find it offensive. But I was thinking about this week. I've read the Gospels enough. The Gospels are, 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 are the accounts of Jesus and his ministry. I've read these things enough. I am very confident about the people in the Gospels who were repulsed by Jesus. It was the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees. They're repulsed by Jesus. And then I look at the group of people in the Gospels that love Jesus, that flock to him. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. And it's the same thing that's going on today. The people who are repulsed by this fire and brimstone, Jesus, are self-righteous Pharisees. I mean, go preach this message in, in churches, in our privileged suburbs. Or go preach this message in the jails of Grand Rapids. They love this Jesus. 
I was just watching this week. I was watching these, these YouTube worship things uh, in my preparation, and all of a sudden this song came on where this worship band was in this prison and all of these incarcerated men, and every now and then it would, it would show these men. These men had tears just streaming down their face, singing with everything they had. And this is why Jesus could look at the Pharisees and say, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drug dealers, they're the ones who are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. In my opinion, this is Jesus' most loving teaching. The reason why he is teaching about sin and hell in such graphic terms is because he loves us. He loves sinners like you and me. And here's why his teaching is so loving. Because sin poses a serious threat to our existence. If we don't know this, we need to listen to Jesus. I mean, just look at our world today. How are we to explain all the human cruelty, the violence, the abuse, the oppression, racism, narcissism, materialism, Murder, abortion, rape, slavery, child trafficking, injustice, wars, fightings, conflicts. How do we explain it? See, our world is trying so hard to believe that our problem is lack of education. Or it's biology and the forces of evolution. Or it's sociology and the forces of one's environment. Or it's politics and electing the right people with the right ideas. I'm not saying that these things don't matter. They do. And Christians ought to give themselves to every single one of these areas. But God's diagnosis for what's wrong with our world, what's wrong with you, what's wrong with me, it's in one word, sin. And think about what God's word teaches about humanity because it's neither too pessimistic nor is it too optimistic. First of all, God's word teaches that the image of God is in every single person on the face of the earth who's ever existed. Think about that. Think about that even in in light of your worst enemy. That image might be severely severely marred, but it's still in there. No other religion, no other worldview has such a high view of humanity than than the Christian, the Judeo-Christian worldview. Every person, according to God's word, is made a little less than God himself. Not one person is to be seen as irredeemable. Nor is God's word too optimistic. I mean, to just put it bluntly, it sees all, all humanity as this one big leper colony. It sees us all as, as being infected with this leprosy of sin. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton says about original sin. Original sin is this idea that we're, uh, since Adam sinned, we're, we're all infected with, with his disease. Uh, and, and, and this is what G.K. Chesterton writes. He says, Christianity preaches an unattractive idea called original sin. 
But when we wait for the results of the doctrine of original sin, we find they are compassion and brotherhood and a thunder of laughter and pity. For only with original sin can we pity the beggar and distrust the king. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that original sin means that that underneath the beggar and underneath the king, they're the same. Because in Adam, we're all sinners. We're, We're all infected with the leprosy of sin, which means right now that I can't look at any person and think I'm better. And I love how he says this. The, result, the doctrine of original sin results in a brotherhood. Why is that? Because we're all in the same boat. We're all infected with the same disease. Original sin doesn't discriminate according to races or genders or economic status. It's pretty egalitarian. And then what the Bible teaches about sin not that it originates in Adam and that we're all infected with it, which puts us all in the same boat. We're in this together. It then teaches us that sin is potent. It says it, 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 it's the thing that destroys life. It's the thing that destroys one's character. It's the thing that destroys one's personality. It's, it's the thing that destroys one, one's relationships, marriages, families, friendships. It's the thing that perverts truth. It violates beauty. It sours. It takes all the sweetness and joy out of life. And the Bible also teaches that because it's so potent, we, we can't manage it. We can't control it. When it breaks in, it's going to break out of our lives. I remember my dad years ago uh, when he was diagnosed with melanoma. And that surgeon went in and, and cut. And he not only cut out all the melanoma that was in his face, but he cut out all the glands along the right side of his face, all the way going down his neck. Because here's the deal. If that physician did not cut it out, my dad would not be alive today. And see, if you and I don't view sin this way, if we don't deal with sin this way, it will always become more. It will spread like cancer. It will break in. It will destroy us. It'll break out. It's going to hurt those around us. One of the great teachers of the church, John Owen, he wrote just this little 86-page book called The Mortification of Sin. The whole book is on one verse in, in Romans 8, verse 13. It's this verse right here. But I can sum up uh, what the whole book is about, but you could still buy it if you want to. But he basically says, be about killing sin, or sin will be about killing you. Or think about someone like David. I mean, we, we, we have these narratives in the Bible, and, and they're there for a reason, especially when they go into such detail. Someone like David, who's a, a man after God's own heart, he gave us our prayer book. I mean, he wrote so many of the Psalms, and, and you read these Psalms, and you see just his massive heart for God. But then when you read the detailed narrative of his life, 
in the text in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, uh, you realize that David didn't just one day fall off a cliff morally and spiritually, but he sowed a little seed of lust here, then he adds a woman there, another woman here, and these seeds start to take root in his life. They begin to grow, they begin to fester, and more and more, these forces become stronger uh, in his life, and then he falls hard. He has an affair with one of his best friend's wives, and then he murders that friend to cover it all up. Gross sin like that never happens all of a sudden. It's never a single act. It's always a process of all these tiny choices, of letting these tiny seeds that come into our life and allowing them to germinate. What seeds are you bringing in? What seeds right now are, are, are germinating in your soul? And you know, you might look at it and think, wait, these things are, are, are so small and almost inconsequential, but they're seeds. Is it the seed of lust? I mean, look at what lust has grown into today. The toil of it is just monstrous. Is it greed? This need to have more, whether it be more money or whether it be more beauty or more status, more comfort, the need to be the best, the smartest, the need to make it to the top, to have more, get more. It's killing us. What about gluttony? And I'm not talking just about food right now, but we're just stuffing ourselves with anything and everything that we can get our hands on. Or what about uh, the, the, the sin that's beneath all sin, the sin of self, the sin of pride, where, where we just need more attention, we need more likes, we, we, we need more comfort. We... What is it? What seeds are taking root? Even let's talk about the things that aren't talked about enough. Seeds of bitterness, seeds of gossip and slander, the seed of anger or worry. Now let's remember who Jesus is talking to. He's, he's not talking to the world right now. He's talking to his disciples. These are people that he is raising up. He's going to send them out and they're going to wear his name I mean, look at verse 37, verse 38, verse 39, verse 41. It's all about doing stuff in the name of Christ. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who wears that name. A disciple lives to, to magnify that name and to make that name great. Sin betrays that name. Sin drags that name through the mud. This is one thing that just flat out just was so encouraging to me this week. Because I read these disciples in the Gospels, and they're, they're, they're so disappointing. I mean, they say the wrong things. They argue about who is the greatest. They lack faith. But here's the deal. When you get to the book of Acts, you start to see that they're going to get there. I mean, they're hardly recognizable in, in, in the book of Acts compared to what they are in the Gospels. 
It's like they're, they're, they're different people, and it's because they are different people. They're so changed. They're so full of faith. They're so Christ-like. And even then, when you read what our history books have to say about these disciples, not one of these disciples ever backslid. Not one of them gave up the faith. Not one of them was associated with a single scandal. Think about all the ministry leaders today in scandal, scandal, scandal. They were righteous. They were wholehearted. They finished to the end. All but John was martyred. They were crucified. They were crucified upside down. They They were burned in ovens. They were stoned. Tell me these guys didn't become like Jesus. And you know how they did it? They're with him. They remain with Jesus. They walk this path between these two mountains. They walk what the path Jesus walked. They stayed true to Jesus. And what is this path? Well, let me get out of picture form now and go to propositional form, which is why we have the Apostle Paul who writes propositionally describing the path. This is to Christians, disciples in Ephesus. Ask yourself if this defines you. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to lust, to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of perversion. They are full of greed. That, however, is not the way, the path that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off dishonesty. You must speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on you while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who is stealing must steal no longer, but you must work, doing something useful with your own hands that you may be generous to those in need. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful to the building up of others and according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of meanness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ Jesus forgave you. And among you, there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person 
such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. How serious are we about living for God? How serious do we take sin? Jesus said from the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And I'm always like, what do you mean? Violence against whom? Violence against what? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. not violence against others, but against the sin that's in us. This is not a message about trying harder. This is a message about getting real. What would happen if this community would get serious about sin, if we pleaded with God, God, open our eyes to see it, all of it, what it, what it is, where it is, the effects that it's having, especially on other people. And God, would you give us then the, 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 the strength, the courage, the guts to confess it, to repent of it. Because here's what we have in God. And we ought to be confessing, as, as James says in James 5, can confess your sins one to another. I confess my sins. There's not one sin I hold back from Libby. She knows it all. She's my wife. We ought to be confessing our sins in our small groups. We ought to be confessing our sins uh, in our marriages, in, in our friendships. We can do it. Satan gets his foothold when this stuff is kept in secret. But when we uncover it, let me tell you something. We're all in the same boat. There's not good people and bad people here. When we uncover it, God comes in and covers us. When we lay it bare, he covers us with his grace, his mercy, his love, his blood, and he washes us, and we're made clean. God, whatever you're putting your finger on this morning in our lives, God, may we have your Holy Spirit come in and cause us, God, to do what we would do. Because, God, at the end of the day, this is about your name, Jesus. We want to magnify your name. We want to put you on display. And so, God, do your work in our hearts for the sake of your name. And in his name we pray. Amen.